Hello, I'm Joseph Malazzi, creator of Dark Matter, and you are listening to Neil Before Pod. Neil Before Blog presents Neil Before Pod. Hello and welcome to the 50th episode of Neil Before Pod. I'm your host Craig McKenzie and we're at that time that comes but several times a year when a Marvel film is released and talking to me about Guardians of the Galaxy is my own band of misfits from outer space. Uh, first up is Chris. Hello. Also he's a raccoon. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and Aaron. He's... I am Groot. Yeah, he's Groot. <laughs> Hello all. Are we all marvellous this evening? I am Groot. <laughs> I was going okay until that pun. Uh, see, what, what listeners don't know is this is all he says throughout the entire podcast. And you can just, <laughs> you can just project your own dialogue onto Aaron for, for the next what, the, what was actually supposed to happen was Chris was supposed to translate for me. Because he's the raccoon. <laughs> it didn't happen. Sorry. Uh, we're, we're not consistent with our nonsense. Nope. Okay, so Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 recently came out in cinemas. Um, about two weeks ago for the UK, about a week ago for the US. So it might still be on people's minds. Um, what were the initial thoughts? Aaron, you go first. I did not like this one as much as Guardians 1. I think it was okay, but uh, I have to admit I didn't really get that much out of it. Okay. And Chris? I've got to say I was a little bit disappointed. I still really, really liked the film, but it did not have that same appeal as Guardians 1 did to me either. Interesting, because for me it's the opposite. I didn't really like Guardians of the Galaxy, I guess, Volume 1, as it should be known from now on. But I did like this one. The humour annoyed me less. Uh, I got along with the plot. Uh, I liked the villain. I was, yeah, I was pretty content throughout. It's too damn long, though. It is too long, but I enjoyed it. Well, that should make for a good debate, then. (laughs) Yes, it should um, so is there any other spoiler-free thoughts? Uh, put me on the spot. I'm Groot. <laughs> Soundtrack was just as good, I thought. Is that what you said, yeah? <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's exactly what I said. What I said there was the soundtrack was just as good, yeah. Yeah, what's the uh, like the needle drop music cues? Yeah, it's. Um, I did like the soundtrack. Yeah, um, that's fine. <laughs> Very eighties soundtrack and uh, whatever else. But um, I don't have anything else non-spoilery to say, so we could activate whatever our spoiler alert is. Okay, we're in spoiler territory. Um, I guess first up is plot. You know, how was the story? Um, the Apparently this film is set about three months after the previous film. Um, so the, the, they're still relatively new to the, to the game of being a team of mercenaries and they're still getting used to each other, which I thought worked quite well because 
it gets you a little bit of that um, we don't quite know each other dynamic from the first one, but also there's some familiarity there. I think when it opened for me, though, with that, I was very wary of it falling into the same basket as Avengers 2 did for me, which was, this is now just more of the same. It's it's like the first one was the, the big reveal where all the information is, and then the second one is, and this is them doing their daily job. And you're thinking, well, that's not quite as interesting as it could be. I think it did avoid that, but the opening didn't didn't really grasp me as uh, as making me definitely want to watch this. Well, in a sense, it does open as more of the same because the first one opened with a dance number, essentially. Or the first one opened with a flashback and then transitioned to a dance number. And then the second one opens with a flashback that transitions to another dance number. So, yeah, it's, it's more that you just see them on the job. And I get that that is their job now, and, and that's what they're doing. We were supposed to be seeing them working together as a team, but somehow just seeing them doing their day job was perfectly okay. But it was like a, it's like that feeling you get when you you you're, you're watching a filler in a TV series. It's yeah, it's all right, it's fine, it's it's good, but but I wasn't blown away by it. Um. I did like seeing Baby Groot knocking around while they were having a fight. I think that was that was a good idea. But for them, when there's just a, a bunch of people chasing them, it's like, well, yeah, there's a bunch of people chasing them. End. See, I, I really liked the, the, the Baby Groot little dance number with all the action going on in the background while the music plays. I thought that was a, a great way of doing uh, that and the introduction. But like you say, once it gets on to... The the sort of spaceship chase. Um, it kind of felt like oh, we've kind of seen that little bit. But um, but yeah, I, I thought the opener was pretty good. I, I found it really weird looking at um, you know the anti-aging uh, makeup <laughs> kit that they're doing now on Kurt Russell. <laughs> at the, the beginning is is you know just the way that CGI is going now. Yes. <laughs> well, being able to sort of anti-age people at will. Interesting tidbit about that. Apparently, Kurt Russell had very little digital facelifting done on him because he's worked with the same makeup guy since, like, Escape from New York or something like that, like 28 films, and this guy is able to make him look as young as he did 30 years ago. Oh, there you go. <laughs> yeah, plus he plays it young. It's all about how he carries himself. And I was like... I was quite surprised to hear that, and I suppose we'll need to wait for the DVD extras to find out if it's actually true. But uh, but it's interesting, that, you know. The obviously you found it believable, whereas when you look at um, if you look at Ant Man, for instance, uh, Michael Douglas, young Michael Douglas, you can tell that there's some CGI work there, um, or the infamous Tarkin in Rogue One, you can tell there's work done there. But with Kurt Russell, I couldn't really tell, and that's because they haven't really done any. There's a fair, oh, fair play to him if it's uh, he's got his acting skills up, yeah. Yeah. Good old Kurt, or good young Kurt, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, it's interesting you talk about how the, the the film opens with sort of business as usual. I find a lot of superhero sequels begin with that. You know, you've got um, if you look at Winter Soldier, for instance. Uh, he essentially opens with him going on a routine shield mission. 
Um, but it's still, you know, I, I think it's pretty good. Now, I sometimes quite like to see the kind of this is what they do all the time stuff before the plot introduces something that that makes it worth following. You know, you get an idea of just what they get up to day to day before things change a bit. Well, it's kind of taking it down a line and seeing what they're now doing. They're now mercenaries, but good mercenaries for hire? Is that mm, the, no, they, they, they still they're steal doing stuff. Planet, planet, planet saving on contract? I don't know. Planet saving on contract where they also steal... I think somehow it just wasn't... Yeah. <laughs> Well, that see, that's kind of one of my issues with the thing is I don't get, I, I, I don't know whether I need to watch it for a second time to get the absolute reasoning for we were paid to protect these batteries and then I put them in my bag and stole them. I think it's just because Rocket not, likes to not only stuff. that, yeah, not only that, it took them a very long time to notice. They didn't go and check the batteries that we were paid to protect before paying us. They just took us on our word and let us go. <laughs> And then Rocket does mention quite loudly in that room, I've got a bag full of batteries or whatever the line was. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's supposed to be just his devil-may-care nature that he wants to push people, he wants to push other people's buttons to get that challenge back on himself. Probably. And that was supposed to be his arc, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's all right. I I suppose it's that, sort of going going back to what he's good at going back to the original sort of thieving and uh, along that line I, I do kind of get it it's just the the ensuing chase <laughs> that I don't quite and the unresolved uh, chase that I, I don't quite get there's something about the trillion Daleks principle that that bothers me about it too because it's you don't believe they're in danger and you're supposed to believe they're in danger because there are a trillion Daleks chasing them in their little funky computer game uh, oh, they're, chairs. They're a, they're a but, fleet thing. Yeah, that was a Yeah, and there, there wasn't... Just because there's so many blobs in the air does not make it more threatening. The, the threat is, is, is given to you by how the characters react to it and... And there's a definite amount of believability to it. And you never really believe they're in danger. So the fact there are so many of them doesn't really have any impact on me. It, it, although it might be nice to see them in their day-to-day job, I think the fight with the creature covered their everyday job because it shows how they personally were dealing with this, i.e. they just kind of flail around and manage to do it by by luck as much as judgment while baby Groot knocks backwards and fortune just does what he wants and there's a comic turn to that whereas them flying through space being chased by infinite glowing balls this didn't have any any personal meaning or any real threat value so it's just a vehicle for then somebody else to turn up in another larger glowing ball who just immediately defeats all the other glowing balls. And that's Deus Ex Machina at its very worst. And at, best it, at best, it gives the characters a reason to go, oh, something happened. What was that? But that could be a knock at the door and have just as much effect, I think. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if, if they just had three heavily armed ships chasing them, if it would have been just as dramatic, if not more, because like you say, with the, the sort of billion ships chasing, 
you kind of think, oh, well, they're going to get out of this one with a large explosion or something's going to knock all these little swarm ships out, and then that'll be it. Whereas if there's three sort of heavily armed ships chasing, I don't know if that would have been more tense or, or less, but it's kind of like once you get beyond that scale, you're like, oh, well, you know, we know they're getting out of this somehow anyway. You know, they're not going to be caught by just one ship, so... I would agree with that. If it was, if that's what they wanted, good threat value, then I think I would definitely want to see something like that. For example, as you say, they've got these three ships. Um, maybe they defeat one of the ships, but it costs them so much, there is clearly no way they can defeat the other two. So immediately you've got a threat that you believe. I mean, I'm tempted to believe that they weren't actually going for threat because it's Guardians. They want comedy and jokes. So... Arguably, they they didn't need a threat value to that scene. But if not, then the humour has to be really top form because the jokes are suddenly the forefront of the scene. And actually, I wasn't laughing at the back and forth between Star-Lord and, and Rocket. It, it wasn't brilliant humour. It was all right. But if they don't have the threat value in the scene and they don't have the great comedy in the scene, then then there's nothing in that scene. So, yeah, I think the, you covered it right when you said it. The, the opening bit, the, the cold open with the space monster, great, but then doesn't really seem to go anywhere with the rest of the opening. Yeah, I, I didn't really mind the, the space battle. Um, I thought it looked really good, and I, I did like the gag with the, the kind of room full of, uh, room full of remote controls that just sounded like an 80s arcade machine. Um I thought that was a good gag and, you know, kind of pointless space battles are, are a big part of lots of things I watch or have watched. So it didn't really bother me. I thought it was just a, I thought it was a good way to just open the film with just a bit of a, it's a bit of a romp really. And it does, you know, it, it only exists to get the ship damaged to the point that um, Eagle can find them and, and take them to the next part of the story anyway. I found it really funny with the sort of arcade sound effects. I, I particularly liked uh, when they all gathering around the one guy who left. <laughs> yeah, and then as soon as he dies, everyone just goes, oh, you're rubbish. Yeah. He's <laughs> about to hit the high score. Nope. Yeah, he's, he's the last one remaining. He managed to survive when all the others died. And then as soon as he dies, they all go, oh, you were rubbish. Oh, well, he's <laughs> the last one remaining great. other than the other side of the room. That they're... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Although he was the only one that followed them into the asteroid field or something like that. I don't know. Um, but yeah, there was another like billion of them just, you know, sitting in another room. Yeah, waiting. <laughs> <laughs> Which was, you know, it was like, all right, okay, they're out of this now. Nope, there's more. Yeah. That, um, but I, I think the, the first one and the second one have that problem of, of stakes not feeling realistic. I mean, it's not realistic because it's all nonsense anyway. But then, you know, the I never believed the stakes in the first one. You know, the fact that they defeat Ronan with... Essentially, what I'm a dance off, which is just you know, it's not something I could ever get behind. So, um, the levels of jeopardy in both films don't really, don't ever feel as significant as they do in the other Marvel films, even the more comedic ones. You know, Ant Man's a very funny film, but I believe the uh, I believe the jeopardy that was in the the final battle, so to speak. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, once they they crash on the that planet that just happens to have a breathable atmosphere, thankfully, you know, but it's the Star Trek or Star Wars problem, isn't it? Every planet is somehow capable of supporting all the characters. Um, and you meet Ego for the first time, um, other than the uh, the flashback at the beginning, but you get your first proper introduction to him and the reveal that he's um, Star-Lord's father. I mean, 
Um, how did that like reveal work for for you guys? You know the the way they handled it. I, I quite liked it in the sense that it was kind of quite casually done, and uh, you know there was that. It was it was meant to be kind of melodramatic, but the the way they poked fun at the kind of melodrama of the situation was was all right. I thought. I think they handled it pretty well. It was uh, like you say they sort of went for the the melodrama element. I mean, it wasn't a surprise because of you know you read it on the news that you know. Kirk's going to be on the film and he's going to be playing Star Wars Dad, so you kind of know exactly what's coming, so it's not a, a reveal reveal, if you know what I mean. I was surprised they did it so early in the film, I don't know quite what I was expecting going into it, but um, but yeah, I, I think they handled it alright with the uh, poking a bit of fun in it and trying to get the stories out of them, and yeah. I think that I was glad they got straight to it, actually. It I think maybe I wasn't expecting it to be him just to turn up and say, who saved us? Well, your dad did. I'm your dad, mate. I wasn't expecting that to come that quickly, but it almost cuts through a lot of trope uh, and a lot of wasted time um, because they've got quite a lot to do on on Ego himself, his own created world. So I was glad they did get through that. I don't have a great memory for all of the fun things that were had. Um, I remember that there was a campfire scene and they chatted around it. Again, no great humour stands out in my head as I remember lots of jokes that they did when they did the build-up. It felt like it was, let's get this done because we need to get this done. It was it was reasonable enough but I'm afraid I can. The farthest I can go with it is it was reasonable enough, and and my memory of it is is already fading. I'm afraid. Yeah, I actually don't remember very much about that scene. I just remember it having a bit of a light touch. You know, he, he casually reveals it. There's kind of a, a melodramatic edge to it. But the, um, but I liked Ego as a character because there was there was something kind of very likable about him in the beginning. That um. That kind of made well his descent into villainy was was inevitable. You know, there's as soon as you see him sort of with his with his three D printed diorama of his life, you know, going from single celled organism to living planet, um, it was pretty obvious that that wasn't the whole story, and there was more to it. But um, but I kind of I kind of wanted to like him throughout and. Um, quite late on before there's any work done to establish that you might be up to no good it's not you know you've got this kind of um you've got this family dynamic going on between the, the guardians anyway so Gamora's objection could just be the fact that she's a bit jealous initially anyway i think this is the thing about that whole that whole development that whole plot line the whole family argument running through it it feels like it was definitely crafted and somebody's put a lot of effort into trying to make sure that you see a lot of family angles all the way through. But I'm so distracted by other things that I had trouble appreciating this this angle. It, I mean, I mean that, that very opening bit when they go back to the planet and they just leave Rocket and Group to, to repair the ship. Why, you know, why... Did Gamora and Jax go with Quill? Why didn't they need to defend the ship? It was just the whole thing at that opening bit all the way through to when he gets to the planet is just 
can we just list the things that we need to do to get the characters where we need them such that we can do all the other funky things we want to do? So I see what you're saying with it. It could have all this meaning and purpose, but it, because it's not dressed up or, or got all the points aren't gotten to in any meaningful way, I'm, I'm not connected to any of this yet. It doesn't actually mean anything in that same way to me. Yeah, for me, Rocket staying with the ship made sense because theoretically he's the only guy that knows how to fix it. And then Groot staying with him is probably because Groot wouldn't stay with anyone else. Yeah, but did you see what Rocket did to fix it? He got the spray gun. Yeah. Now, I am totally up for that because in the future, when you just spray nanobots across your ship and they fix it, that is actually brilliant. Plus, this is a bit more space opera, so you don't want some kind of hard-hitching engineering crew getting into the gritty details and asking for this, that, and the other spanner and so on. You know, you don't want that. But because of that, somebody who's got an engineering qualification or 40 years' experience knows how to work the squirty gun it's just, you know you don't you don't need to have that meaning behind it you know arguably drax could have held a much bigger squirty gun and they could have squirted across the ship a lot faster it, it you know it, it's it, it doesn't you you can we can all sort of dig into it and we can find that meaning in it but if you're having to sort of build that yourself then then you're distracted, and I, I was distracted. I was distracted too much to look for the, the the important stuff that I know is what you're talking about. That I know is is, is supposed to be there. It did yeah, lead to one of the most. Sorry, it did lead to one of the most fun little scenes that I, I quite liked, which was Rocket defending the ship and managing to take out several Ravagers all at once. With all yeah, all those little traps. traps, they were good. Yeah, sort of Home Alone styly. <laughs> yeah it is and that makes for a good little action sequence and I can't say that I didn't enjoy that sequence but getting to it it felt like they could have almost had that as the opening why, you know, why have they crashed on this planet and why is Rocket by himself you know, and, and then great action opening but yeah, yeah but I would have liked to see Rocket do some actual mechanical stuff I'm reminded of The Empire Strikes Back um, where you know the, a large part of the plot is them essentially sitting in a cave trying to fix the Millennium Falcon. So you see them doing a lot of mechanical stuff, and then you get a lot of character in there as well, because, well, you, you see them just, um, you know, you see them just putting stuff back together and, and using tools and stuff. But yeah, the whole um, the whole squirt gun that fixes the ship, that was a bit I think I think they had, broke, you know, they had broken the ship too much to have them just sort of sitting there repairing. It wasn't sort yeah. of one blown-out engine or... You know, one gun that was wasn't working. They had lost the whole rear section of the ship. <laughs> so it's, it's one of those where you're like, you've either got to go down the lines of yes, we have a mystical squirty gun that can build new ship, or you've got to go and you know, like we were saying about the beginning, you've got to scale it back to the point where they severe you know bad damage from a, a very swift direct attack from another ship, rather than you know they survive several several bullets. But then their final bit is getting chopped in half at the end, you know. Hmm. Yeah, and splitting up the characters, as you said, Aaron, was definitely a a plot point because you needed to have Rocket in the position that he could come to their rescue when when things got tough. Because uh, if the, all the Guardians were there, then you wouldn't have that opportunity. Yeah, and that's a shame. It's 
it's because the plot needs it is 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 never satisfying for me. Yeah, well, I did like um, I liked how they used Yondu in this film. Um, he, I mean, I liked him in the first film as well. I think he was, I think he's pretty consistent across both. And I like how they filled in the sort of backstory of he was hired by Eagle to bring um, Peter Quill back, but then he decided not to because. You know, because a small child can sneak in places. He's one of the characters that's been the most focus in the film, despite him not sort of officially being one of the Guardians. He's given kind of the most development and the biggest sort of backstory developments, you know, out of all of them, I would say. And, I mean, you know, great job playing it by Michael Rooker, but it's... uh, I, I, I really liked his sort of little subplot of the film. I thought that was great. He's definitely one of the best parts of it, and that that's where the family angle does kick in, and his connection with Rocket is definitely one of the best points of this film. I can't deny it. The Even his bit, though, I, I struggled with slightly when, at the start, we find he's been exiled for, for child smuggling or whatever it is, and you're thinking, where did that come from? Because the actual offences were committed mostly, what, 20 years ago, and all of a sudden they've just caught up with him. And I think I actually struggled to follow what was going on there. I couldn't, I didn't realise why he'd been exiled and what the problem was. It, it, it needed that filling in for them to say, oh yeah, it was what you, you, you've been trafficking kids like, uh, st- like the Star-Lord guy. Um, and maybe they had only just found out, but even though it was, it was actually a really good part of it, I did actually kind of miss the point early on it's almost like i felt like they were catching up trying to fill in the gaps how can we turn this guy into a hero how can we explain his actions in the first film and make it good in the second one and i think they did a great job when i knew what they were doing i thought it was a good use of it but took me yeah it did take me a while to catch up with it plus it it allowed time for a gratuitous sylvester stallone cameo yes (laughs) he did what he needed to do that was fine, you know. Just it wasn't. Around and looked important. Yeah, exactly. What, <laughs> what were you, you know, what were you expecting? A big, uh, big Shakespearean piece. I mean, well, he could do so. it. Have you seen Creed? You know? I have not. Yeah, you should. Okay. Uh, Stallone can do both, um, and his character is in what two scenes, and one of them's after the credits. So uh, yes, yeah, but he's um, he's going to be important later, apparently, which is. It's part of the charm and the problem with these films. You know, they'll, they'll chuck in seemingly random things and be like, don't worry, we've got a plan for this four films later. You know, and uh, I suppose it's a lot of confidence to think that your audience will still be here in four films' time or, or whenever they plan to you drop these characters, you know. Oh, but they've earned that, though. If yeah. we're still here since um, Hulk and Iron Man 1, then we're not going anywhere, you know. <laughs> yeah. I even watched this I mean, one, the even though is, I was pretty sure I wouldn't like it. The thing is, they plant these nuggets, but they don't... If, if they're doing it well, they're subtle. You know, there's no sort of big signpost above his head saying, this character's coming back. So, even if another Guardians film never happens, even if you never see the characters again, there's no signpost above the head of that character that says, oh, he's definitely going to be very, very important down the line. No. You know, so... It's it's one of those. It, it doesn't sort of impact too much later. Yeah, 
Yeah, Stallone's role was to put Yondu in prison, which then helped his part of the plot and it all came together. But yeah, I liked how Yondu was done, and his uh, his death was quite was quite meaningful as well. I thought. Well, it fitted exactly what they set up. They set up him as a proper father figure. It's the old line, he's your... What was the line? He's your father, but he's not your dad. I mean, they they really set that up well, and then they went through it, and he... he is It's a believable sacrifice, because they do only have one piece of kit, so it wasn't too forced. And so, therefore, yeah, I was on board with that. I thought it was a good ending. He also gets one of the best lines of the films... Uh, the film, sorry, of... Uh, <laughs> And Mary Poppins, y'all, which is uh, yes. howl in the cinema. I just thought that was great. That that was a good one. It was just the the way he was descending on his on his little arrow thing. <laughs> uh, that was good. Which it must yeah. be the most powerful weapon in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, oh, yeah. unless used on Drax. Yeah, I suppose so. But, <laughs> oh my God, it's. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is slightly it, painful, it, it, you know. It can go through anything and destroy anything. It's just, you know. Yeah, it's like main character invincibility, though, isn't it? You know, that um, that kind of problem. Uh, Actually, I think I, I, I'd liken it more to the Robert, Roger Rabbit principle. If it's funny, then it becomes the truth. <laughs> so, you, you know, you don't want him to be killed by this, but you do want him to be hit by it in a comic way. Therefore, yeah. it cannot kill him at that point, because if it did, it would not be funny. Yeah. Actually, I think Drax was my favourite part of this film anyway. I think... Um, really? Yeah. Wow. I, I don't know. Um, I, I just quite like how dry the character is and how brutally honest he is. You know, and he's, apparently he's a, he's a champion of, for autism. Um, you know, a lot of autistic fans are, are warming up to him because it's kind of well, it's they're maybe not intended to portray him that way, but it's, it's kind of this. He says exactly what he thinks and isn't aware that it, it might offend people and and all this stuff. So people are kind of looking at that as a bit of representation. So that's that's positive. It's interesting. I mean, I it's interesting you should put it that way there because I found him to be that way in in the first film but in the second film I found him to be mm, crueler and in in the first film he would say something and it would not fit the circumstance and there was an innocence to it that I think if you're really going down the autism connection the innocence is important because clearly nobody is trying to do something whereas in the second film, he is a bully. He is brutal. And he says things that are guaranteed to hurt. Now, I think the, the difference is in the first film, he accidentally hurts because it's not every single thing he says. Where in the second film, pretty much every line he's given is designed to hurt somebody else. So it's not the character doing it. It's definitely the writing but it's one of those things where they say something's become a stereotype of itself because because he was always hurtful in everything he said. It wasn't this random nature of this might hurt you, it might not, I'm not in control. It was definitely no, we're going to make jokes out of this. Let's make him a brutal 
evil bully. Everything he says is going to be awful. And I, I, I stopped finding it funny because it was so cruel. And it, it's supposed to be a bit of fun, and I'm, I'm definitely taking it too seriously by thinking of it that way, but it, it was just that repetitive nature of the brutality that eventually turned me off, actually, in the way that the first film didn't. The first film just had that, that greater innocence to it. The first film did have them sort of misunderstanding people's jokes and plays on words rather than sort of saying hurtful things and not realising he was saying hurtful things. Whereas this does... I, I found him funny. I found him a, a bit like Craig. I found him one of the better of the Guardians characters in this film because he's one that gets a bit of focus. But I do see your point about how if you... You know the way the rules of the character work. It did seem more like a bullying kind of thing uh, towards Mantis than a, a funny thing. I do get that, but I- it's not even just Mantis. It's Star Lord. It's, it's it's pretty much everyone. I think I would have I would have found it funnier if they'd have just sprinkled more of him, as you say from the first film, misunderstanding everybody else. Because in this film, he understands everybody else perfectly but then strangely can't reverse that empathy to see how they are misunderstanding him. So it, 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 it just, it, they, they weren't clever enough with it for me. They didn't carry on enough with what they'd set up. Yeah, I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that most of his scenes were with Mantis. So, you know, he was only ever one way with her because, um, because he genuinely thought, she looked hideous, I suppose, but the thing and her kind of lack of social skills helped, um, meant that she wasn't particularly bothered by it either. But I, I found it interesting how that he doesn't, you know, he's not saying those things to be hurtful. He's saying those things just because that's what he thinks. But he doesn't hold that against her. Well, t- take the Star Lord one then, where he his mantis reveals something about. Um, Star-Lord's emotions and Drax's responses. That must be so awful for you. You must feel so awful right now. And the thing about that joke is he's expressed empathy. He knows exactly how Star-Lord feels and he is finding it hilariously funny. So that that is not that autistic connection where the person is failing to draw an understanding. That's somebody who knows exactly what's going on and his, and is finding it ridiculously funny so that is definitely the behaviour of a bully not somebody who doesn't understand yeah I'd forgotten that bit although uh, Drax is a bit of a well he's been a brutal brutal killer you know for, for years now but he's had that in the first thing he's he's had a certain honesty to that he wanted revenge he's not somebody who has enjoyed killing everybody he's met he's certainly wants to to vent his frustrations but in in the first film he his anger was directed specifically at the person who had killed his family now revenge is something that is usually counterbalanced in a plot where the person cannot cruelly murder even in revenge uh, and, and and they do that in the first film where he tries to get his revenge and he fails whereas in I don't, I, again, I, I don't think that sort of balance was carried over into into the second film. He, he does seem more like he now he just enjoys hurting, which I, I don't think was set up before. Yeah, maybe not. Well, 
I mean, I don't remember the first film that well. I do remember Drax being probably the thing I liked most about it, and um, I liked him in this one as well. I thought he was, um, I think he was one of the stronger elements of it, and um, and I, I did quite like Mantis as well. She, you know, it's a weird reference, but she reminded me a bit of a, I forget the character's name, but the 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 female character in Tron Legacy. It was that same idea where she'd been kind of created out of nothing and just um and and just kind of molded with only one person to show her how things work and ego's probably not the best role model because he's well he's a maniacal living planet unfortunately that's another thing where i'm where i feel like it was a, a perfectly reasonable idea, but the presentation didn't work for me because when we're first introduced to her, she says, I have been raised by myself and just this person to teach me. Therefore, I do not understand social interaction and have trouble uh, understanding what you mean. And you're thinking, so hang on a minute, you're, f- you're actually fully conscious of all these social things that you don't understand well enough to explain it, but not enough to actually then start picking it up. And I think that was just the epitome of the... I think that just describes the, her introduction to me. When they're on the ship talking to her for the first time, it, it's it's pure exposition. She just tells you what you need to know for the character. And that could have been a, a, a screen... Uh, that could have been just in the screenplay that we could have just read. They could have just handed that document out. Here's what you need to know before you start about this character. It's that thing that you, you'd say to me, you know, show, don't tell. She just told us who she was, but me that needed to break character i think i think once you got into it she was fine and i i get your 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 description of what she should have been but it's it's just that setup again the setup didn't didn't work for me fair enough she was sort of a, an exposition giver Yes. Uh, I was trying. I was trying to work out. It was sort of why. Why did they put that character there? But they needed an impartial person who had been with Ego in order to reveal plot details. Yes. You know, he, he needed to have an assistant or a robotic helper or something that would let words slip, so that people go, "Oh, hang on, there's something not quite right here. There's something definitely fishy about this guy on a planet by himself." You yes. Know, it was. It, it was like that was the reason, you know, she had the, the the fun scene is the one that was kind of not spoiled in the trailer. It was good to put it in there for fun, but, you know, the sort of uh, being able to feel people's thoughts and explain them, you know, that, that scene was good fun. But for the rest of it, she, she was kind of forgettable for me. I can't remember many things. I can remember more of what Drax said to her in those funny moments rather than anything that she particularly did. Yeah, and most of her scenes were around building that kind of friendship with Drax where he'd just he'd just make fun of her and she'd sit there and take it, but eventually it gets to, you know, and I did quite like the, the payoff where Drax said that she was, I think he, he uses the word beautiful, but then qualifies it with on the inside. You know, and, yeah, uh, it, was, it was one of those things, it was like she... It was like, to pair the two of them up, he doesn't understand why people would be offended at what he's saying. She doesn't understand that she should be offended by what he said. Yeah. And that that's meant to be the pairing, but you as the audience understand why both of them should be upset right now. Um, I, I, yeah, I guess that, that, was, that was the sort of comedy element of that. But. 
Yeah, I was probably overthinking it then by that point, though, because all I could think about when she was on screen together with Jax to that point was you have the ability to sense and feel any emotion, and yet you claim to have no real understanding of people's existence. It feels like even if she couldn't have put it into words, her being so clueless about it didn't really seem to fit with what they said she could do. Plus, if she'd not met any other people, who on earth had she been practicing this feeling sensation? And how could she possibly have interpreted anything she was feeling if she'd never encountered any of them before? I think the character was full of too many things that didn't match for me to really believe that she was in any way real. Well, she must have interacted with... Well, Ego's the obvious one. She would touch him every day to send him to sleep. Um, but she must have also interacted with all of his children that he kept bringing back. I think in that case, I would have expected that person to have been very good with emotions and working out what people were thinking. Even if she couldn't have expressed it in words, it feels like she should have been very knowledgeable of things like joy at discovering uh, somebody and fear at realising that the father was about to kill them. And the interaction she'd have had with those people would have then undermined the statement that I have not met anybody and I do not know what social interaction is because I have not spent any time with other people, which she's very clear on at the start. So either she has never felt Ego's real emotions when she's touched him and has never touched any of his kids, or she has and has somehow managed to do that without learning anything from it at all. I think the whole character feels like it's a reasonable idea, but the more I think about it, the more flaws I find in her. That that was quite a dodgy statement, talking about touching Ego's kids. I just thought um, I'd that out. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Not as dodgy as what Ego did to them afterwards. Well, that's true. Yeah. Um, and that whole... Yeah, that, that that plot around... Once it was revealed that he was kind of looking for... Well, not kind of. He was definitely looking for an heir. So he, d- he impregnated women across the universe to, uh, to try and find someone to share his power so that he could destroy the universe... No, no, it was turn the universe Invert. into him. Yeah. 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 Which extend, is, extend himself slightly. Yeah. Yeah. Which kind of feels a bit like a, a Doctor Who season finale plot, actually. <laughs> Come to think of it. You know, um, the, those kind of stakes are unimaginable. And uh, uh, the large stake stuff, I mean, we're all used to it now. You know, uh, how many how many summer Marvel films or any other films have we seen where the, the entire Earth is in jeopardy? But this is literally the entire universe, you know, and uh, it's it's weird. Um, it's weird that the film is so casual about it, I suppose. I think if they went too far with it, they, they would lose the comedy element. I, I think this film goes for the funnies, in a way. And it's one of those ones that if you sit there and go, oh my God, look at the stakes then it would stop being funny you would you wouldn't accept the joking around that then happens afterwards 
it, it does seem like a grand plan, like beyond what you've seen in many of the films. Like you say, it's normally, oh, this planet is in jeopardy, or this character is in jeopardy, or you know that you know that's it. But this is he's trying to terraform, for want of a better word, umpteen planets all at once. I'm presuming hundreds or thousands or the whole lot that he's visited. You know, every inhabited world he could get his hands on. Yeah. It's um, by that token. If I mean, if they're not going to take those level of stakes seriously, then the the entire thing could have been a bit smaller. You know, it didn't have to be to grow to that extent, especially since the focus was on reuniting a family. Essentially, um, ego could have been enough of a threat to that on his own, without yeah, uh, with without him putting in peril every planet he'd ever seeded. But it just seems that the. At the time, especially when you're sort of seeing the shots, it's basically like a big blob that's just kind of expanding. Yeah. And it it seems a bit like... I, I'm trying to find the right words to describe it, but, you know, Star-Lord's or Peter Quill's response to it seems to be, oh, I'm all right up to a point, until he says he gave his mum cancer, at which point he's then peeved off. But up to the point where, you know... Ego's sitting there going, and uh, I think everyone should be like me, the whole thing should be controlled by me because I've been here the longest, so there, kind of thing. He seems to be going along with that, all right. They're <laughs> not particularly putting up much of a what the hell are you talking about up until that point, you know? Yeah, and the idea seems to be that he's somewhat overwhelmed by the whole experience. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but I did, I did quite like how the father-son dynamic developed throughout the film. Um, I mean, they did the really stupid thing like playing catch with a with a ball of light that was a bit <laughs> weird. It was pointless. <laughs> well, it was just the idea I that he, was... he'd never had that, you know, and it's a very it's a very typical Earth thing, you know, to to as a father-son bonding ritual, and certainly in the United States, I suppose. But um, so it was that kind of oh, he's finally getting to play catch with the old man. I think it was to parody all that, wasn't yeah. it? Really, it was uh, an, an over-the-top way of doing it. Yeah, yeah, it did look stupid. But I mean, there was other good stuff about it. I quite, I always kind of like these. You're you're a part of something much larger than yourself, kind of, kind of conversations, and I quite like the whole, you know. There's a light at the middle of the, in the middle of this planet, and you can learn to control it and all that stuff. It's kind of the humble beginnings, supremely powerful thing, and then ultimately he chooses to give up that power, which is you know a, a bit of a heroic thing, I suppose. Well, it's something that he never had, or he didn't know he had in the first place. So. It's. I, I don't particularly see him as him giving it up or turning down more. More sort of turning down the opportunity to have it. But the character was never going to keep it, knowing that all these planets have had to be converted in order for him to have that power. Or was he even going to have that in the first place? Because it seems that he was just going to be used as a conduit or a battery. Well, he got uh, to in tap into it. He made Pac-Man. Process, you know. You got. You got to beat Pac-Man only. Only when he was fighting at the end. <laughs> Um, you know, the impression I got was that he was basically just going to be used up in order to, uh, you know, in order to terraform the other planets. Yeah, it wasn't clear whether they were going to work in unison or whether he was going to get like drained. But 
Um, I don't know. It's again, it was it was just too large for you know what they were trying to get at. I mean, I think Ego's plan could have been something a bit more. If it just had been drain him to sustain himself, then you know that that might have been enough. But the whole, um, you know, the whole "I gave your mother cancer so that you could be taken off world" thing was very kind of that that was that was a bit of a gut punch, and that was far more effective than I'm threatening the entire universe right now. Yeah, I mean, I do. I I, I kind of think I wish they'd went along that line rather than the we've we've created some galaxy. You know, so we can have, you know, it, they're guarding the galaxy again it, of thing at the end rather than it being just, you know, save yourself from being turned into a battery and then prevent this from happening to others uh, sort of plot. Yeah. You know, and, you know, I suppose the grand revelation is, you know, the, the line that we've talked about already, you know, the sort of Yandu thing of, you know, he was your father, but I was your dad kind of thing. You know, that that was meant to be the revelation by then with that. I mean, my issue with that plot is kind of... I, I have an issue with that, and then I have an issue with all the tiny little sub-bits that seem to come off, and I, I still don't quite understand the massive battery chase across the universe. It just... That, that bit kind of just acted as a weird distraction for me. I thought that was something that would be resolved a lot quicker, and it's still unresolved by the end. It's just like a random annoyance that pops up. It's it's great seeing the sort of over the top uh, nature of the I, I don't even know what to call the sort of empire that they're the part of. Showing my ignorance of the uh, <laughs> of the material, but I, uh, that kind of wound me up a little bit through it. It it seemed that there were too many threads in this, whereas with the first Guardians film, you're like that's the villain. That's the villain that's going to just, you know, he sets out from the beginning wanting to wipe out this planet. And by the end, what's he doing? He's trying to wipe out the planet. Whereas with this, we've got one group of people that are running about after a set of batteries that have been nicked. And another villain who's wanting to destroy the galaxy and create it again in his image. Yeah. Well, the, the, I mean, the batteries only really existed so they could use them to blow him up at the end. You know, that, that was their ultimate purpose. You know, it took two and a quarter hours to get there but they, they eventually did it you know it just so happens we've got these high powered explosives that we talked about that are more powerful than a sun or whatever it is you know uh, and then so it kind of lays it plants that seed that then pays off at the end of the film it's like if only we had something that could destroy this planet sized being it's like oh wait we do Yeah, I, I did like that they retained Ego's comic book origins. I was worried about that in the beginning when he was just a guy. And I was like, well, this is just a guy called Ego. But then, um, especially when you get the shot of his, the planet with the, his face and stuff, um, I yeah, was like, sort of yeah, the other cool. side. Yeah. Um, I like, uh, I always liked Ego, the living planet, when he would appear in things like Silver Surfer comics and so on. And um, it's because he's just this weirdly, he's just this weird being that, you know, that, that's. I guess LSD in the seventies could only come up with, but um, but he's just yeah, it's such a cool villain, and uh, apparently Marvel managed to um, get the rights to him because uh, because they had to apply to change some other mutants. Fox had to apply to change some other mutants' powers, and in exchange, they managed to get Eagle back. So you know all these little legal jumbles that go on. 
What about the what about the other characters? I mean, like Gamora had this whole bonding with her sister arc, and you know, I could I honestly couldn't really be arsed with that because because there was nothing there to begin with. You know, you never got the sense in the first film that they were especially close. They just happened to be sisters because they were raised by the same person, but other than fighting each other, they didn't really do or say anything. Nebula got the better development out of that relationship. I think Glamora was probably one of the most underserved of the Guardians in this. Um, you know, she didn't get very much, but Nebula gets the development where she sort of she tries to get a revenge. She gets over it, you know, and now she's going off sort of uh, <laughs> to uh, to get more revenge, but not you know not against the Guardians. And I suppose we're going to see her in a future, you know, in the future film again. You know, it's she sort of gets a little bit of redemption but Glamora I, I kind of felt that she didn't get set very well she was more sort of a target of affection for Star-Lord again and that didn't seem to go well I mean even even Peter Quill and Star-Lord doesn't get that much in the film I think he was probably on the screen less than Yondu was yeah maybe yeah even though his arc is essentially the the, the core of the film um, it's it's part part of the core of the film because you sort of disappear off to see Rocket and uh, Groot and Nebula and you're 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 shooting about all that. You don't overall. When I came out, I thought I didn't see much from that character, and it didn't it, the character didn't pop as much for me as it did in the first film. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, think I, don't about, know, I don't know how to put my finger on it, to be honest, yeah. for the thing, but I, I, I was a little bit disappointed. I think that's one of the reasons that I'm, I'm a little bit disappointed in this. Yeah, I don't, I don't feel that Star-Lord was changed that much by his experiences, even though he was. You know, He, he sort of realised where his real family was, and then um, it's that don't-meet-your-heroes kind of mentality, isn't it? You know, He meets his father and then realises that it's not what he hoped or or wanted from that relationship and then realises he actually had what he wanted all along but hadn't realised it. Um, in terms of Nebula, I agree with you that she's better served than than Gamora is but, um, and I especially like the whole talk about Thanos being a kind of brutal father figure, you know, as in every time uh, Nebula and Gamora would fight she would, uh, she would lose and then she would be upgraded by some mechanical means each time to try and make her better and it just would make her worse you know but um, it, that is actually the biggest bit of characterization we've ever had for Thanos and he isn't even there yeah I mean it's it, it, but it sounds exactly like how he would work you know you, you lose you lose an arm to improve you know your arm gets damaged you know it gets replaced and she was losing every single time you know you can imagine how you would then resent the other sister or the other competitor. Yeah, you know, and all so she wanted was affection. That was yeah. it. <laughs> all she needed was a hug. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, Aaron, what did you think of Gamora and Nebula? Well, I can see that they were supposed to be direct, parallel, or alternate to Yondu, in that Nebula was. Another misunderstood character like Yondu was misunderstood, and if only we got to know our family better, we would forgive them 
what we think are their trespasses. But the difficulty probably was because the two stories were entirely separate and didn't seem to connect to each other. It, it, I think that made it difficult to really get some real feeling out of the out of the two women's stories. As, uh, as Chris said, they didn't really hit as hard as, as the other one. They'd, maybe if they'd have wound them in together somehow and not and not had them so separate. Because they were both both of them are effectively along to fight and then watch the other people do their job or what or, or get their uh, development, as, as Chris says. So it, it's another one of those things that is it, it was fine, but possibly lacked lacked the punch. Yeah, and I think a lot of it was to do with the lack of prior development of their relationship. Um, I don't remember then. I mean, again, I haven't seen the first film that many times, but I don't remember anything major about their sisterhood and uh, played with in the first film at all. So it kind of comes out of nowhere. Almost comes out of nowhere here, even though. The first film did have Thanos, so there was a good opportunity to show what he was like as a father figure to these two people. It reminded me of um, TV shows, actually, where each episode of a a 22-part season has a theme, and every single character encounters that theme in their own fashion as relevant to their previous developments and these two had a sister so if there was going to be a uh, a tv show given over to family clearly those two had to deal with their sisterhood because that's the strong family element in their lives so it, it it's almost like it was it was there because it was the theme and and maybe that was it yeah yeah, and it needed to be dealt with because you can't have them in a room together without talking about the fact that they were raised together. Um, and their their teaming up was was okay. You know, it was um, again it, it furthered the plot along because it, it showed us Ego's little cave of corpses, which was pretty bizarre. So it, it got us to the point where oh my god, Gamora was right to not trust Ego. You know, but which obviously we all saw coming. I would imagine. Yeah. yeah. It kind of when you when you then reverse back a bit, it then makes it hard to forgive Yondu, despite the fact he gets his redemption moment and everything. You are looking at a pile of corpses that he delivered. You know, it's it's some of the some of this film when you peel back the jokey veneer is dark, is proper dark and brutal. Yeah, um, you know you're you know th- that's what he got chucked out the ravagers for essentially was delivering all these kids to Ego who was you know going do you have the gift no you don't okay go on <laughs> next yeah. you know it was uh, that's all that was happening there that's where well, that was pile it, of corpses comes from yeah is it pointed out that he knows um, he knows what goes on when he delivers them or yeah that's why he saves Star-Lord because he knows what the fate is so he chooses to keep him alive yeah so he's just kind of ignoring the fact that yeah he's delivering these kids to be tested then slaughtered I mean that that's a pretty large pile of bodies (laughs) (laughs) you have to wonder why how a a living planet couldn't simply just expel them into outer space or something you know after after the 200th child does he not ask the question is that 
it's like when when you sort of take the veneer off, you kind of go, oh, that's dark. That's you know, I mean, there's a lot of comedy and jokes around the film, but then you sort of go, oh. I mean, I would, although Yondu wouldn't have done them all, would he? I mean, I would imagine. No, well, you're, yeah. you're presuming not, but at the same time, you're still going. It's, it's still dark, you know. In a in a film which is a lot of light-hearted and a lot of banter and things going about, you still think, oh, what the hell? I mean, well, I mean, a lot of drags is, jokes are about murdering people, so that's you know, yeah, like, true. <laughs> and you know, the the sort of retaking of the Ravager ship. Is another one of those where the uh, floaty space needle manages to uh, lots of people die, yeah. massacre a lot of people. Though it's all done over jaunty music, so that's okay. With um, Groot cutting about, smiling, and yeah, yeah, you know, it's got Baby Groot in it. Cute Baby Groot, lots of people dying. Cute Baby Groot, there we go. <laughs> oh, yeah. you know, it's it's another one of those ones where. Uh, I know there was a lot of murder and things in the first film, but I don't think I noticed the death toll as much <laughs> for yeah. some reason. I don't know what particularly raised my attention to it this time, but yeah, that's it's one of those things that I sort of left going. Ooh, there was a lot. Of, there was a high body count by the end of this. Yeah, I think well, you've, you've done it. You've described it already actually that's in the first film there's no need to consider two different things in the same person the pirates are pirates they're awful because to be a pirate you have to be awful whereas in the second film we're asked to believe that the lead pirate who keeps all these people together by his sheer brutality is actually just a softy at heart who wishes he could be a dad and you're thinking wait do those two things actually ever come together? And, you, and you're asked to compare them. So I think you, you, your, your mind was drawn to it because you're trying to think of this guy having those two faces at once and it doesn't, doesn't work, possibly. Yeah. Yeah, it's a strange one. I mean, yeah, I remember being quite shocked by that scene as well. I was like, he's killed a lot of people and they're not just like anonymous people. They're like his people. You know, they're like fellow ravagers. Um, even though he's been kind of excommunicated, he they, he must still know these people pretty well. I, I did, what I didn't understand is why they needed to like clear out the entire ship pretty much before blowing it up. <laughs> yeah. Even even if they had sort of detached the front pod and set the auto destruct on the other half, I would yeah. have almost accepted it more than the fact that they basically kill everything <laughs> and then, and or, then blow up the ship at the end, you know? Yeah, or fire the needle through their legs to incapacitate them or something, you know? Oh, you know, you've got to incapacitate the guards to get out. You, yeah. You know, you can then set the auto-destruct and separate the front, and it almost, you know, you, you would not let them away with it completely, but you're not quite seeing it done to jaunty music. Yeah. Yeah, it was a strange one, but uh, yeah, there are a lot of tonal inconsistencies, but I had that problem in the first one. I don't know, it just bothered me less in this one for some reason. Um, so we've talked a lot about Baby Groot here and there, but um, is he a character? I'm inclined to say no, because he's just kind of there to, I mean, it's the same gag throughout as an, ah, oh, he's a baby and doesn't understand stuff. You know, it doesn't actually understand how to follow instructions and then it ends up creating a source of tension at the end where it's, if you press this button, we have a time to escape. You press this button, we die instantly. You know, and that's the kind of, the build-up to that gag. 
And well, build up to that. See, that's Sorry. another one of those great gags that was not spoiled, but you kind of knew it was coming from the trailer. Well, I kind of yeah. knew it was coming from the point where he just wouldn't listen to Rocket uh, the first time. I was like, uh, this is going to like be a source of tension later. I mean, it wasn't yeah, really. I mean, but, you know. it was. It was, you know, I, I know you don't watch trailers very often, but yeah, that was kind of one another one of those gags that was in the trailer. I, I, I liked it. He was a character. He wasn't, you know, obviously he's I am Groot and that's all you get vocal-wise. But it's, um, I still liked the character. I still thought it was a bit of fun. You know, it was something different. You saw, you know, Groot in the first film was the utility Groot. You know, you needed lights, Groot had lights. You needed to get up to a tall thing, he was a stepladder. It's, you know, he was the utility belt, you know, the sort of Batman utility belt, where you need something, it's on the utility belt. Um, Whereas it was good to sort of take that away from them in this film. Yeah, and I think that, well, while he was... Uh, essentially, the Deus Ex Groot, as I think I called him in his first in my first review of the of the first one, uh, you could tell what he thought of people, you know, or how he what his relationship was to people. But with Baby Groot, there wasn't really any of that. You know, he would just kind of he would just decide whose shoulder he was going to sit on in that scene. I think you're asking quite a lot there from him to to be able to perform Shakespeare in his current setup. I mean, it's a bit harsh to downgrade him as not a character. I mean, mm. arguably he he had the role of mascot that yeah. might have been given over to a character's pet in in in, in some other film or, or TV show. But he was one of the best things in it. He gave us a lot of laughs. He was there was never a scene where you were bored to watch him. And despite the fact that he wasn't capable of expressing detailed empathy. I think there's two other characters on there who were much less interesting to me that you could also accuse that of. Yeah, I mean, I did like Baby Groot. Don't get me wrong. I thought I thought he was used well um, throughout, you know, and um, and was some of the, well, the few times that I did laugh, it was mostly at him. But um, uh, but I still I still wouldn't quite call him a character because he doesn't really go have anything to him other than the fact he's an infant that doesn't understand anything. But I would have quite liked to see him sort of, you know, maybe he's more comfortable around Rocket, maybe he doesn't want to be anywhere near Drax, you know, and things like that. I mean, you could have, you could have done something with that, I think. I don't think it was needed. I can't honestly see that he was any less developed than the single sledgehammer force that was Drax and 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 the the simple fine instrument that was Mantis, no, he the baby group was no more was no less developed than those two. I th- I thought he was a fun character. I I just really liked it. Like you say, it was he was treated as as like a pet character would have been in another film. But I I think you still got uh, you still got a performance out of it. You still got an idea of who the character liked and didn't like in a way when you see how he was treated by the ravagers for example you still get emotion there he still would choose who he was going to sit with or who he was going to let carry him or you know you still sort of saw that a little bit so i i, I think 
the character was okay and he sort of deployed very well. They didn't overuse him, which I think was a risk with this, considering how many people came out of the other side of you know the first Guardians film and wanted a dancing Groot. <laughs> you know they could have really overused him in this, and I, I think they managed to keep you know keep him back a little bit. I think teenage Groot's going to be pretty infuriating. <laughs> I don't I don't know how much of teenage Groot we'll see. He's got to be the one that's much. in Avengers, right? I, I think we've seen. Um, I think we've seen teenage group. I think we'll end up on semi-adult group by the next one. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay, so on to action scenes. I mean, we've talked a little bit about them. Was there any that stood out or didn't stand out? I mean, we've we've talked at length about the opening one. You know, I quite liked it. Aaron didn't. Chris, you were quite on the fence slightly. Uh, what about other action sequences? Uh, we've talked about the obviously the the, the brutal murder sequence. Um, other ones, uh, any stand out or in a good or bad way? Well, we liked Rocket's scene, and we liked the opening scene. They were probably yes. some of the better ones. Definitely got to have Rocket's uh, Rocket's defending the ship scene was brilliant just firing the the ravagers into the air seeing all the different groups getting flung up at different times <laughs> from the, the sort of wide shot was excellent loved that um the fight at the end the big fight uh, was funny and i think served its purpose it was good it was it was sort of good to see yeah i liked um, elements of the end fight uh, you know the the, the pac-man bit was was quite good and it, it was a payoff from an earlier reference um and uh, the tape joke that that was quite funny. That's the best part of the whole film, the tape joke. Yeah, Drax said, "Is it Scotch? Will Scotch tape do?" Yes, he doesn't have any. You know that kind of. Mm. It's um. They, they sort of keep the camera at that angle for just the right amount of time with that. Yeah. You know, you're seeing Rocket as the voice in the background as he's going round every character, going, "Have you got tape?" You know. Yeah, it's it's Star Lord that's going around asking people, and and Rocket standing there with group. But yeah, it's it, it's an interesting part of the um, comedic writing, I think, because it's there's a certain cleverness to it. It's actually fast done well. I think there's a lot of other parts of the film where there is a a single joke that's supposed to be a one liner. A lot of them are, they're not built up, they're not in context. It, whether you laugh or not really is whether you find that particular pun or circumstance funny in and of itself. Where all of a sudden that's compared to this tape joke at the end, which is in context of the situation, is utterly ridiculous based on what they're actually trying to do, but still somehow has very important meaning in the plot. It, it was such a standout joke to me, just because it was so well crafted. As I say, compared to the rest, which were which were sometimes funny. I don't get me wrong; I did actually find some of the one-liners funny, but but they were that they were they were one-liners. They weren't as crafted. Yeah the the thing that bothered me the most about the end action sequence is they were fighting a planet, and at no point did Ego just decide to just crush them all. Which he could have done. I don't know He's, if he had manipulation at that kind of level. Well, he, he obviously point, did. You had because Mantis, Mantis for a good period was keeping him asleep or keeping the 
you know, the heart of the planet asleep. That was the impression that you were getting. Yeah, but so I don't know. I don't know how there was sort of before and after that point, though. Um, yeah, I think you know it, he obviously had was able to control every molecule of his own existence. So I think, um, yeah, I think just dropping a mountain on them would have been uh, easy enough. I think or, it's you know, the same kind of reason that you get with Ronan in the in the first film doesn't just put the staff to the ground. Yeah, you know, it's, it's you know it would be a game over. <laughs> yeah. Game game over element, so you've got to, you know, you've got to leave them, leave them to it. Yeah, I was enjoying enough of the action sequence to not let it bother me too much, but it just I kept thinking, why yeah. doesn't he just crush them? This could be over in like five seconds, but then there'd be no film left. But you know, I guess that's the problem when you create a supremely powerful character like that. You know. And, well, they didn't bother limiting his power other than that he just decided not to use it, I suppose. But it's, it's, you know, I think we've said, I've, I know I definitely have in a couple of podcasts in the past, is when your villain gets made so, so powerful that you've got to come up with an excuse to limit them by the end. You know, you build them up to be this undefeatable creature, monster, villain that you just, no one can get near, he can take out enemies with a single blow... And then at the end, he gets you know you know he's got to get taken down somehow. So you know writers sometimes can paint themselves into a bit of a corner with that, and I suppose they just in this case they ignore it because they just don't get him to use his power. You know. Yeah. Yeah, it's what it is. Was there any other action sequences? I can't really think of any. I think that was it, wasn't it? I mean, Nebula and Gamora had a brief fight, I suppose. I don't know. Any it's still a very well choreographed fight, though. I barely remember it, so I'll take your word on that one. I imagine it probably was. Aaron, can you remember any others? I think we've, I think we've done them all. In in other segments, actually, I think we've sort of ticked them all off. Yeah. So uh, obviously, it's a Marvel film. Uh, and Marvel films, they link to each other, so that could be our next segment, and this one really doesn't link to any of the other ones, strangely. There's no mention of Infinity Stones, Thanos is only mentioned, Um, Earth doesn't have any cameos from random Avengers characters. I think this is the light break before the storm, to be honest. It's. It, I, I mean, I think James Gunn's been given a really good thing by Marvel to to create this little galaxy away from away from the other that they can sort of play about with. He seems to get a lot of free reign with it, but yeah, I think they've stuck away from throwing too many Infinity Stones and Thanoses in. Yeah. Because if they do that, you've you know your next one is is for Ragnarok. You've then got your your Spider Man next. Actually, <laughs> is it Spider Man next? Sorry, yeah. Spider Man next, and then four, and then. You know, all the others start piling in at the back, and it's, I'm guessing things are going to get Infinity Stone heavy again, and possibly giving people a sort of break without it is a good idea. Yeah, although the the Earth part, you know, where it was, uh, I forget which where Star Lord originally comes from on Earth, but uh, when that big blob attacks the town, I was expecting War Machine to fly in or something. Yeah, for you to see someone trying to combat it or... Yeah, 
I don't know. I suppose there isn't there isn't really a shield, or is there still a shield at the moment? I, I don't yeah, know yeah, if you'd, no, you'd expect them to sort of pull up in a van, some sort of shield van, to be pulled up looking at it at the end. I don't know. Yeah, although if largely the Marvel films are set roughly in real time, so you know the year they they come out tends to be the year they're set. Um, this one's unique in the sense that it's only set three months after the um, after the last one, um, which. If you presume that was set in real time, so that'd be like twenty fourteen, that was just before. Well, it, it was the last film before Age of Ultron came out, and it's weird that this kind of growth that wiped out a town wasn't mentioned at any point after that. I, I don't know if they were planning. You know, the th- the thing is that they probably didn't know that far ahead. Oh, they just came. Yeah, they just came up with it. Yeah, but. Is um, it, you know, it's one. It's one that they've just come up with. I, I think, yeah, you would have expected maybe a shield van to pull up or someone to try and combat it, but maybe they were just trying to keep it something alone and something separate and simple. You know, they just had a big blob enveloping people, <laughs> and that yeah. you know that kept that kept it nice and easy. Whereas to throw something else in there, you know, you could have almost not had Earth appear at all in that sense. But um, I don't know. It's just weird. I mean, maybe it'll be retroactively mentioned. It'll be like that'll be like that thing three years ago, and there'll be a picture of it in the in the background. Um, or when when the the Avengers meet the Guardians of the Galaxy next year, it'll be ah, oh, so this so this was to do with you, you know, that kind of something like that will be mentioned. I would imagine this quarantined blob area. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, so it's all your fault, is it? Oh dear. Yeah. Uh, although there is one kind of, I would say one reference that, that filters through all of the, not just Marvel Cinematic Universe films, but every, almost every Marvel film ever made is the bit where Stan Lee's sitting on an asteroid talking to a bunch of bald people. <laughs> um, those those characters are what call the Watchers, and you know there's variations of them in other types of things like Fringe and so on, but essentially they, they keep an eye on all the pivotal events that happen without interfering in them. So there's been a fan theory cutting about for years that Stan Lee is that character. That's why he's in every film, no matter where it's set or when it's set. Um, and, you know, it's, it's it's a silly theory, and, you know, he's he has it has no impact one way or another, but uh, his appearance in this film pretty much confirms that, that he's one of them, and I don't like that they've confirmed it, to be honest. I'd rather... I, I like to speculate rather than know some things, sometimes. Well, I like that he's played a bit of service to the, to the fan theory, you know what I mean? I, yes. I, I think that's, that's him doing one for the fans, and a, a cheeky little wink to camera, uh, James Gunn-wise, you know, because he seems to be someone that, that sort of reads a lot of what the fans are saying, uh, and is a fan himself. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I, I, I guess that's what that's for, really. But then now every subsequent appearance is going to be like, oh, there's the Watcher again, you know. Rather than, oh, look at Stanley. But, you know, it'll be the same thing, but... I, I, I think there'll be a, a large section that don't even know. They just go, that's the guy that appears in all these films. Yeah. It's like, this tell me the, who the space the jockey is. the cameo guy. <laughs> it's the cameo guy, yeah. The king of cameos. Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, and there is one other sort of cameo. You see Jeff Goldblum's picture in, in the credits. He does a bit of a dance. 
He's going to be in there. You know, I didn't. I, I didn't notice that was him actually. Yeah, I thought it was him, but I didn't. I wasn't sure at the time, and then I read it afterwards, and it was like, yeah, that's him. I've, so, I've got to, you know, I am. I, I, I really liked the credits, the sort of dancing silly credits, and the yeah. the music with um, <laughs> David Hasselhoff in. I just, I just thought that was great. Yeah, I, I, it's the first time in ages that I haven't mind sitting through the credits between the the numerous uh, <laughs> post credit stings, the cheesy music, and the funny dancing and stuff going on. I, I, I just really enjoyed it. In terms of the post credit stuff, do you think this one was overkill? Do you think five of, is too many? I, yeah, five is too many, but they weren't the the post credit stings that we're used to seeing normally sort of advance something in the story. They normally get one that advances something in the story, and another one that's like a jokey, teasery thing. You know, it's normally a joke scene or a thing. With this, it all just seemed a bit a, a few disjointed random ones. You obviously get the pod scene. Yeah, that that's the definite story which furthering one. Like the, yeah, which is Adam the, the show you further on, and then the rest mm-hmm. you get the jokey one with Groot, teenage Groot. I suppose that's what that one's supposed to be, and the rest are all, you know. Yeah, what uh, are even the other? There's the there's the Sylvester Stallone puts together his own team of Guardians of the Galaxy, who are made up with some characters that were in it originally, the, yeah. the original team in the comics. Some of them, I don't think all of them, but I can't really remember those characters that well. Uh, what else? So there was that. There was Teen Groot. There was Adam Warlock. Stan, Stan Lee getting left behind. Stan Lee getting left behind. Yeah, that was the last one, wasn't it? Yeah. Hello. Yeah. Aaron, thoughts on post credit scenes? Five too many, or yeah, too many jokes. Oh, they were all jokes. They fitted the rest of the film, though, didn't it? Where they didn't really need to. They didn't really want to connect into the other Marvel films. They just wanted to give you a. A fun little finish, yeah. but well, um, three of them were jokes. Two of them were semi-serious. Yeah. The um, the Adam Warlock one. There's nothing funny about that. Yeah. And the Stallone one it, isn't that funny either. I suppose technically, yeah. I suppose they must link into pre. They must link into films coming then. I guess. Yeah. The other three, though, Teenage Group, where you had uh, Star Lord acting like a. Uh, a parent who you know whose child wouldn't listen to him. That was the joke there. Stanley getting left behind. Yeah. Yeah. Five is too many though. I think. Uh, I think with Spider Man, we'll have a more sensible two. Yeah, I think it was a little bit of overkill. I mean, it was fun. It kind of fitted, like, like you were saying. It, it kind of fitted with the theme of the film. It was. It was a bit of fun, and they just sort of threw. It was almost like extra jokes that they couldn't fit in during the film. So, for, yeah. ah, let's put them in the credits thing. <laughs> uh, you know, we we don't have space for this elsewhere, so let's put it here. You know, yeah, we can't put these in organically as part of the plot, so let's just chuck it in randomly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there was other little sort of other Marvel references throughout the film as well. You know, you saw Howard the Duck kicking about. Uh, he was sitting in a bar or something like that. You had uh, Cosmo at one point as well, didn't you? Yeah, Something the like. dog, yeah. Um, yeah, it's not really a Marvel reference, but a David Hasselhoff cameo that, that was pretty random. Oh, I liked that. I thought that was a great, great joke. <laughs> yeah. yeah if, if, per- you can, if you can get David Hasselhoff for, for five seconds into your movie, then why not? Um, well, I'm pretty I'm sure we could get him on this podcast for five seconds if we, if we really tried. 
Okay, you're on. Next oh. podcast. <laughs> Craig, the challenge accepted. <laughs> Off you go, Craig. Oh, no. Yeah. I, I want to edit this out and it's never happened. Yeah, no, no, this happened. This definitely happened. I'm now going to mention it so many times before the end of this podcast. You'll never edit them all out. <laughs> time. Just watch me. No, um, <laughs> it's one of those. He's a, you know, he's not the, um, you know, he, he's not the uh, the big the big box office draw. I don't know if he ever was, but he's not he's not as popular as he once was. So it's kind of he does show up in a lot of these novelty roles, doesn't he? Maybe after you've got him on this podcast, he'll be more sought after. Maybe that's hey, it. You you say that to him when he's on this podcast. <laughs> Neil before pod is the. Uh, it's, it's the first stage of his comeback tour. <laughs> Although he's popular in Germany. People like his music in Germany. So there. Uh, I think I don't have much else to say on the film. Um, should wrap up now, I suppose. Uh, I, liked, I liked it a lot better than I liked the first one. Although I haven't had a burning desire to watch it again. But I'm also not against the idea of watching it again at some point in the future. Um, I thought it was long the first time I watched it. The only time I watched it. So I feel like watching it again would only make it feel longer. You know, the slow scenes would be even slower because I'm I'm kind of... I'm not experiencing I'd, I'd, it for the first time. So. I'd like to see it again. I mean, the first Guardians film is one of my favourites which I think is why I was a little disappointed this. I still really, really enjoyed it. Just didn't hit the same spot that the first one did for me. Uh, I still found it funny, uh, uh, but where the other one is a film that I will go to every once in a while, I don't know if this would be the same. After seeing the first Guardians film, I wanted to go in and see it again instantly, whereas with this, I'm not too sure. Fair enough. Aaron, final thoughts? Wrap-up thoughts? Um, probably the same as Chris, although uh, even slightly more extreme reaction, because I, if I never saw this one again, I wouldn't be bothered. If it came on, I could enjoy a few of the gags that I enjoyed, probably mostly around the tape joke and Baby Groot, but yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be too worried if I didn't see it. There was... There's too much reliance on one one line of gags, which I I didn't I didn't think the first film suffered from that. So yeah, I really enjoyed the first film, and that's the one I will I will be looking out for in the future. Number one, not number two. Did anyone ever think that I would be the one being saying, oh, "Yeah, I quite like this one," and other people might have been like, "Yeah." <laughs> yeah, I mean it's. I I really liked it. It's just I didn't like it as much as the first film. And as I always say to these podcasts, when you've got your critical head on, you find faults rather than finding praise a lot of the time. But I yeah. just didn't find it as, as, as go-to and as instantly likeable as the first one. I think I went in with such high expectations that when I was disappointed, it kind of, it kind of burst the bubble a little bit for me. Maybe that's the maybe that's the key, you know. Uh, uh, Aaron, did you have high expectations, or were you just kind of waiting and seeing? Yeah, I think I think I was just waiting and seeing because the second film is always so difficult that I never I want I hope to like the second film, but don't expect to. 
Um, so probably I was pleased that it wasn't awful. I was pleased that I did actually like some of the gags, but maybe it matched my expectations in that it wasn't as good as the first one. And I had very low expectations. Um, so since I wasn't such a fan of the first one, I wasn't expecting to like this at all. So the fact that I enjoyed it more than I thought I would is is enough. I mean, I don't want to really watch it again. Um, you know, I'm not I'm not rushing out to watch it in the cinema ever again. Uh, See, we've got we've got the view of someone that wasn't looking forward to it. Two people that were semi looking forward to it. What we need now is the opinion of someone that's not seen the first Guardians film, <laughs> just to see it off the wall and get yeah. that view. David Hasselhoff, maybe. <laughs> no, well, uh, we're saving him for the uh, Baywatch podcast special <laughs> coming soon to a podcast channel near uh, you. That, that film is out soon as well. Yeah, yeah, it is. So you'll be doing press and all sorts. <laughs> so I, you know, I'm really looking forward to hearing him on the podcast. See if I manage to arrange an interview with him. Everyone's going to. Be oh yeah, so yeah. I, I, I am looking forward to you arranging the interview with him. <laughs> Genuinely, okay. I'm going to have to contact his people now. Yes, you will. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, David Hasselhoff, if you're listening to this, we want to speak to you. (laughs) What, you're now wanting him to get in touch with your people? Well, well, (laughs) however it's facilitated, just so that he knows that, you know, he's a desired guest on this podcast. Yeah, see, he'll be busy now with the Baywatch tour. Yes, and I can ask him about that one scene he did in the 2008 Knight Rider TV series. (laughs) For the pilot episode. There we go. So, yeah, Marvel gives us another film. Um, it's quite interesting that you, you almost can't... You can almost only judge Marvel films in relation to each other at this point. You know, they're almost a an entire genre unto themselves. Um, you know, it feels unfair to compare them to other films because they're just so... In terms of structure, they're so different because they're part of a cohesive whole rather than being their own little thing largely i mean this thing this is a film with a a three-act story but um to judge it in comparison to insert other sci-fi film here it doesn't feel fair so uh i don't know uh i would put this somewhere in the middle of the marvel pile i guess I've never updated my list since before Age of Ultron, so I'll have to do that at some point. It's not at the bottom for me, but it's not in the top five either. What is at the bottom? Thor 2. (laughs) (laughs) That hideously awful film of no value. (laughs) Wow. Uh, tune in next time for the Thor 2 podcast. <laughs> yeah, we've got to do it with the cheesy chart rundown music. You know. <laughs> that one. And then get a copyright claim. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. I don't know. Signing the swinging symbol. Is it not out yeah. of copyright by now? I don't know. Uh, yeah, Aaron, maybe you need what I had with Star Trek Into Darkness. You know, you need that one, one more cathartic watch just to rant about it on a podcast. I can't think of anything more likely to drive me up the wall than having to watch Thor 2 again. Well, you could do what I did with In It Darkness and watch it in 15 minute chunks. It's just, just prolonging the agony. That's just spreading the torture out. No, with In It Darkness, I couldn't take it for much longer than 15 minutes at a time. Mm. That's why I, I was like, that's enough for today. It took me like 10 days to watch it or something. It was weird. But anyway, next up, we've got Spider Man. 
um, which I'm looking forward to. That's next on the, the Marvel listing. So, uh, excited about Spider-Man, people? Yes. <laughs> oh, that was the most convincing guess ever. <laughs> that was, yeah. Uh, yeah. That was, what word will make this stop? Yes. <laughs> I, know, I was and, trying to do um, a kind of I'm next really... time on Marvel, kind of, you know. Next time on Marvel Podcast. Um, uh, yeah, looking forward to Spider-Man, looking forward to Thor, looking forward to them all, really. Um, you know, and there's I, the I, I, Inhumans, which is a hybrid between a film and a TV show. And we've got the Defenders stuff coming out, and I've not watched Iron Fist yet. I've watched about two episodes, so... I've got tons of Marvel to catch up on. Yeah, and we have to catch up on the Defender stuff, even the stuff I don't like. And you keep telling me that Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D.'s got a lot better, and I've not caught up on that either. Yes, and there's Runaways, and there's Cloak and Dagger, and there's something else. Uh, Marvel is growing like Ego. (laughs) Maybe Ego is Marvel. (laughs) He's, He's slowly spreading out to take over the universe. Oh, uh, we've rumbled them. We've said too much. <laughs> and the blob's yeah. coming to get you. That's it. Oh well. So on that note, uh, I think we should we should end. Um, Chris, thank you for attending. You're welcome. I look forward to attending your interview with David Hassel. <laughs> and Aaron, thanks to you for attending as well. I likewise look forward to your David Hasselhoff interview and his appearance on this podcast. So, that was our discussion on Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. Thanks to YouTuber Einstein's 1117 for the supply music. And if you like what you heard, please subscribe on YouTube, iTunes, or any major podcasting app. And we hope you'll join us in the next Mail Before podcast.